Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phyllis Govan. With me today uh, is Liz Hanna, writer of The Post, Longshot, Mindhunter. She's here to talk with me today about Mr. Willis of Ohio. But before we get to that, um, did you watch this show live in 99? Or was this a show that you came to a little later? Or how did that work for you? It's funny because um, the West Wing is such a massive influence on me um, sure. as a writer and and a storyteller um, that I feel like I've always watched it, but I actually didn't watch it when it was on. Um, my really? mom, yeah, my mom watched it. I came to it later. My mom watched it, and like 
I was a teenager and I, so it was like, it was just, I don't know. I was sort of not, (laughs) I just wasn't smart enough, I guess, to watch it. I was like, you know, I was, I was down to watch uh, uh, some other stuff. So no, I did not watch it while it was on, but I think the first time I saw it was when I was in college and I had, and like somebody had the DVD box sets. And so I watched those and then I became wildly obsessed. And now I watch it at least once a year. You know, it's funny. I to be to be clear, I didn't watch it live probably until season three. Is my guess. I had mm-hmm. friends that watched it. Similarly, I mean, I was nineteen in ninety nine. I wasn't an avid television watcher. Um, I had my shows that I really loved, but by and large, I wasn't. I certainly didn't um, uh, watch as much TV as I watch now. Um, but but similar to you, once it got its hooks in me, now it's like it feels like it's part of my DNA. Um, yeah, it's very strange. Like I rewatched the episode we're going to talk about mm-hmm. earlier this morning to just prepare, and like I sort of don't have to pay attention to it because like I know <laughs> what it is. Like yep, I was like, yep. do I have to rewatch it? And I was like, well, I'll prepare, I'll rewatch it. But it was like on my iPad, and I was like, yeah, I know what's going to say, and like <laughs> Eric Balf. Eric Balfour is going to show up at some point and he's going to have blow in his pocket. Like it was like this weird, it's this weird, like, and there's a rhythm to how it goes. That is like, I don't know. It's very much in my, yeah, it's like, feels like it's in my DNA as well. So, um, I, I have to ask you are, you are a very sort of, um, politically active person. You know, I feel mm-hmm. as though, at least through your social media, um, mm-hmm. how do you feel this show? Cause there are people that feel like this show has had an impact on the way politics is perceived for good and for bad. Um, mm-hmm. And in terms of the expectations of what people think civil service is supposed to be about, or, mm-hmm. or at least what the sort of uh, consequences or what have you, uh, the pros and cons of that. Do you feel, and I don't hold this against the show, just to be clear, there are some people that feel as though, uh, you know, Trump is because of the West Wing. I think that's a that's a false equivalency. <laughs> well, let's um, <laughs> but, but I do think that there, it, just in terms of just how people sort of perceive politics, do you think, mm-hmm. I think it's had a, a lot of pros, it's had some cons as well, but how do you feel the show holds up today versus when you first watched it? Um, it's, I find it really difficult to watch today because um, it was a better time then. <laughs> like we could... Um, <laughs> look at, you know, Jed Bartlett and be like, well, that's ideal. Um, And that's a president. And when you're looking at a television character as being more presidential than the person who's in the White House, that's wildly disconcerting. Um, You know, it's, I think it's a really interesting thing to talk about. You know, I, I, Sorkin has spoken a lot about this, I think, particularly in the past few years, as people talk about like a reboot or what it is. And, you know, in 99, when the, when, when this was happening, you know, it was right before W. Yeah. The Democrats were still in power. There was still, you know, we we're post Clinton impeachment, but still like gripping to this ideal of kind of like a Camelot style, you know, White House. And then it sort of was an instantly a downfall. It was like, you know, the first half of season one is like, this is great. And then season two, the second half is like, well, we're in the shitter. So this is terrible. Um, so I, I think it's really interesting sort of to look at it with, I mean, it's, I guess it's season two that sort of hits right when W is elected and it's, you know, sort of been up and down ever since. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's really weird to look at it back and forth. I think, 
There's a lot. There's also a lot that feels very similar. This episode in particular, you know, like how Republicans and Democrats play the same game and it's very sidesy. It's very partisan. You know, I think there's a really interesting moment where Toby admits about the partisanship and how, you know, everyone does have their own goals. Um, the thing for me that frankly is very applicable to now that I think is, I always find slightly silly that when people talk about it is like, Oh, you know, now everybody's like, let's reach across the aisle and talk to each other. And it's like, well, no, that's not necessarily possible with everybody because you're talking to people who think that COVID-19 doesn't exist and they've been elected to Congress, you know, like yeah. you're talking to, it's not like you're, you're, I mean, even in Sorkin's world of the West Wing, Republicans were idealized, you know, I mean, and there was um, a belief that uh, Republicans and Democrats all had the same goals, which is democracy and fighting for Americans and belief in a better system for everyone. And some believe in more government, some believe in lesser government and all of these different values, but they're still fighting for the same thing. Whereas now, like who the fuck knows what anybody's fighting for yep. and all we're doing is tearing each other apart. And, you know, we're excited when the Supreme court rules for, you know, the first amendment amendment on like the most obvious first amendment case of all time, because it's, you know, it's scary. It's really scary. So I don't know. It's like, it's very, very long winded thing. It's like very difficult for me to watch it now because it's so different. Yeah. I mean, it's, but it, I would not I, blame I, it for <laughs> Donald Trump. I feel like, no, I, I mean, I guess it's, it's more that people felt like I've just read a lot of articles about, you know, the Obama White House and whether or not there was sort of this idealistic perception of what he could and couldn't do because of sort of, fictionalized white houses and 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 since then we've seen scandal and we've seen house of cards and we've seen these television shows that show perhaps a more accurate representation of how cutthroat uh it is this is a very idealized perspective of politics and i mean you you've obviously you know you wrote the post you've seen sort of um you obviously know quite a bit about real politics and what actually happened and there is a a lot of people watched this show during the pandemic. It was a bomb. It was a very sort of, there's something very calming and lovely about uh, how melodious everybody speaks and and everyone's very smart and everyone has, uh, you know, the, the, the best of intentions. Um, save for Mandy, it seems. But I, I mean, ultimately... Poor Mandy. <laughs> poor <R. I>. Mandy. Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it's just, it's interesting how you find it difficult to watch. I found it difficult to watch. And then weirdly rewatched most of it during the election um, yeah. as like a way to sort of help me uh, cope with what was going I on. I did too, actually. I watched season one during the election um, and I found it. Yeah. It's a, it's almost, it's like comfort food. It's like a security blanket. And it, 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 for, it at some point makes me feel like a rational human being where I can sort of watch the West Wing and I'm like, okay, well, this was the most popular show on television by the millions for like two years. So I, like that, that wasn't just Democrats. You know what I mean? Like there is something to like a lot of Democrats don't own fucking TVs. So like, you know, it's, it's like, it's not just the liberals who are watching this show. Sure, sure. So I, there's something like that is, that makes me feel better about that thinking that. Sure. I don't know, there is like a core group of this country that still believes in these values. But yes, I mean, I think it's an, a very idealized, idealized version. And there was an idealized version in 99, you know, and it was an idealized version, it's an idealized version in 2021. And, um, but I think, you know, at its, which, which again, I think Sorkin has talked about, but it, it's interesting that we feel like in 99, it was more acceptable 
Whereas like this was his security blanket was writing about it this way. And I think it's because things have just gotten so much worse that we're like, yeah, take us back to 99. That sounds great. For Let's sure. go it's, qu- it's quaint, quite frankly. Yeah. Like the scandals yeah. that exist within the West Wing are, especially considering what we went through during the Trump administration, feel just downright like yeah. quaint. It, 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 is, it is interesting. I mean, I think that this episode, there's... I'm I'm very excited to talk about this episode with you because I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff to unpack. I think there's some really great classic West Wing stuff, and then there's some stuff that feels very of its time um, in terms of how it sort of navigated some of the uh, some of the racial stuff. Some of the there's like homophobia. There's a whole bunch of stuff within specifically within the the argument in the Georgetown bar, which <laughs> we'll get into. Yeah, the homophobia uh, stuff in the end was I was like, well, this is the most 1999 part of this series that I've yeah. potentially ever seen. It, it was yeah. that was like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let me just give a brief synopsis. Uh, Toby and Mandy worked to convince some congressmen, including the nervous Mr. Willis, who assumed his late wife's office, to approve a commerce bill that includes a vital census counting provision. The president's daughter, played by Elizabeth Moss, gets into an ugly argument in a Georgetown bar along with Josh and Sam. Elsewhere, CJ swallows her pride and asks Sam for help to understand the basic components of the administration's stance on random census taking in 2000. And a peeved President Bartlett scolds Leo when he learns his uh, Leo. Leo's wife has left him. Mr. Willis of Ohio aired on November 3rd, 99. It was written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Christopher Maziano. 13.37 million viewers turned into this episode. Uh, that's, I mean, that's, I'm sorry. I'm about, that's the most 1999 thing I've ever heard. Like, what? That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. If you get like 1.2, you're like, it's a hit. <laughs> it's great. I mean, thirteen mil- over thirteen million people tuned in. Like this is this wasn't we didn't have DVRs. There were people were in front of their television sets for a time slot to watch a television show. Yes, I it's mean it's crazy. <laughs> like that's, but yeah. that is to me the most uh, putting politics aside. <laughs> that is like a f- as somebody who works in television is sure. mind blowing to me. Like yeah. a three point one is like you're a fucking hit. You should just, you're ready. Your show's about to go on for the next six years. Like, have a great time. It's crazy. It's crazy. 13 million people, but just to blow your mind even more, I did an episode with Brian Cogman. I have movies that I have made that 13 million people have not watched. (laughs) That's the comparison I can make to this. That is insane to me. Okay, and not sorry. just haven't watched, haven't watched ever. Like, let alone like, at never, one specific time. No, I mean, time. never, <laughs> never watched. Like, never seen. Yeah. That's bananas. Okay, sorry. Well, what I was going to say is I did an episode with Brian Cogman on uh, an ER episode from season six that aired in 99. Uh, just, you know, somewhat random November episode that that over 30 million people watched. Like, it's just, it's one of those things where you're just like, this was a different time. Like, people yes. will never, never know this level of, of, uh, of commitment to a television show. No, I mean, you even look at it now with sports. Like, I'm a big sports fan. And you look at it, like, with basketball rating, you know, like, the NBA final Eastern Western playoffs, Conference finals yeah. now. And like, yeah, it's a playoffs. And like, you look at the ratings for that and they're incredibly low. You look at the ratings for the Super Bowl and they're incredibly low. And like, those are live events that you don't typically DVR to watch. You know, it's not like this is something that I'm like, Oh, let me go check out Ted Lasso tomorrow. Like it's, sure. you know, and the fact that 13 million people watched this episode of television is like mind blowing to me. Okay, it's, it's no, you're you're absolutely. It it's really interesting too. You mentioned the Super Bowl and and obviously the post Super Bowl slot for a television mm-hmm. show is still a coveted thing, mm-hmm. but 
I mean, it's not even remotely close to no. where it used to be. I mean, no. you used to have, you know, an episode of Friends would air after the Super Bowl and 60 or 70 million people would watch that episode of television, um, which obviously is insane. But now it's just like people don't have the patience. To your point, people DVR things. They watch the clips on ESPN the next day or mm-hmm. whatever the case might be. It is, it, it's, yeah, it's different. I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily worse, just to be clear. It's just mm-hmm. to your point pretty mind-blowing to think of something that seismic. Um, yeah. And, and this show was that. Um, I, I want to read just a couple, uh, two quick quotes uh, from Aaron Sorkin. He said, you say the word census and people fall asleep. It's a questionnaire. Turns out it's terribly important. I think turns out, I think is very interesting. But Aaron Sorkin seems to be a guy who a lot of people do a lot of research for him. And he mm-hmm. learns a lot of things as he's mm-hmm. writing things. So his characters sound very smart. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not convinced that Aaron Sorkin has the most well-rounded <laughs> knowledge of things which i think is quite interesting um it's not i feel like that's most writing but i feel like that's most writers you know like i spent you know three years of my life very enmeshed in like four months that's around four months like four weeks that surrounded 1971 (laughs) if you asked me like any other particulars of 1971 i could not tell you anything but those four weeks i could probably tell you every single or i could have until it like vacated my brain three years ago but like I could tell you every intimate detail of, of that experience and, and those four weeks. But so, yeah, I mean, I feel like as writers, it's like, I have to research this really important detail. Right. I'm not going to really look at anything else. About it. Like how much but don't you do also I feel like, understand? <laughs> do you also feel as though, I don't know if you're this way, but all that research might not manifest itself in dialogue or in oh, events totally. that happen just to have it in the back of your head informs the way that you write a character, you write a scene. Um, And I think that Aaron Sorkin and this show in particular is so great at explaining things in a way that is digestible by the public. He's, he's always been very good at that. Like a lot of his, his obviously, you know, Moneyball or social network, whatever the case might be in terms of just making sure that the audience is able to lock into what's going on. Otherwise, you know, obviously you're nowhere. Um, and, and Allison Janney says, I thought Aaron was crazy. I read that. And I was like, well, this is going to be the most boring thing ever. And then we did it. We had such a good time. I learned right along with CJ, as did my friends who watched the show. And now I can guarantee you everyone who saw that show is going to fill out their census because they see how it works. I, I love how uh, idealistic that is. Uh, that yeah. didn't, we can obviously see that the, that didn't exactly play out. But I do think that I have learned a lot of things through the West Wing. I don't know mm-hmm. if you can say that. I mean, obviously, um, you know, it's 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 a really interesting uh, thing to think about people learning from a fictionalized political universe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that uh, there's a lot of stuff to be taken away from that. I I, I want to um, walk through the storylines sort of mm-hmm. individually rather than kind of walking through the plot. Sure. Um, so I, I the first one, I guess, the easiest one, and also a little bit problematic, is the Bartlett Leo stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it really interesting, and I'm obviously very interested in your thoughts in terms of the the, the Leo Bartlett relationship is a fascinating one. It it does feel brotherly, um, mm-hmm. but it also feels like Leo keeps Bartlett in check. Yeah, I mean, I think their relationship over the course of the series is one that I I think is sort of the heart of the show. I don't think that's a monumental or like you know massive realization to, to yeah I don't think that's a hot take to, to come out with and I you know I don't I don't want to get into like sort of where that relationship goes because I think that's mm-hmm. you know it's really sort of hard to watch that 
in particular, you know, um, towards the end. But I think the first season, what's so interesting is how much it's focused on them. And there's a really great moment, which I think happens either right before this episode or after this episode when it's the state of the union. Mm -hmm. And he says to, you know, whoever is, is the, you know, guy that has to stay behind. Do you have a best friend? That's your chief of staff. And Leo is watching on. And there's something really interesting about that. There's also something like very idealistic about it. Having written about the white house a number of times, like chief of staffs have the shortest life expectancy in the West wing. (laughs) They live, they they basically keep their job for like a year and then they burn out. I think the longest serving was like two and a half years, maybe three. So like, that's maybe the most idealized (laughs) role in this conversation. But I think what's really interesting about it is like, there is still a power dynamic. There is still very much a line that is drawn. And we see that in this, we also see a bit of misogyny and like, you're the man, which is one of the more that, that I actually, that was like, as it was on my iPad, that was when I was like, huh, that's a. That's it just a doesn't feel one. like Bartlett to me. It, but it doesn't. But it also, it doesn't feel like Bartlett. But there are times where he like is very, you know, mm-hmm. old school. Mm-hmm. And there's those episodes later in, I think, season two or season three, when they're doing the flashbacks, um, and mm-hmm. uh, Lawrence O'Donnell is playing his father, which is like one of my all-time <laughs> favorite cameos, and. Like his dad is like a really hard ass and, you know, hits him and is in all of this. So like, there's like elements of that that are kind of woven through, but it does feel very much, this episode felt very much like they were trying to figure him out. Like they hadn't totally figured Mm -hmm. out Bartlett and they hadn't totally figured out the dynamic between Leo and Bartlett. I, I, I completely agree with you. It, it, it felt like, what they wanted was the scene at the end with Bartlett mm-hmm. and Leo, right? Where where mm-hmm. Bartlett, you know, hat in hand, goes in and tells Leo, you know, I'm sorry, and and I shouldn't have said that, and Leo accepts mm-hmm. his apology, and and that that's where they wanted to get to. I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily sure they had to go as far as they went in the Oval Office scene, where Bartlett feels so, um, I mean, annoys the wrong word, but almost like hurt by the accusations and like, or not the accusations, it's- but the, the situation. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think that's like there's a couple of elements that really feel like what they're dancing around makes sense. And it's like, you know, when Leo says, I didn't want you to blame yourself. Yeah. And then, you know, Bartlett's like, well, are you saying it's my fault? And there's it feels like there was a version of that scene which very much was reactionary that, mm-hmm. you know, Bartlett was blaming himself and he knew that this was his fault. Ultimately, you know, not necessarily him as a man, but him as the office and sort of in a global sense and the the sort of shame and blame and like guilt that he has for that. And it feels like that's a really interesting scene that I would love to see, but it does, it's kind of that one line that skews, which is like, you're the man, fix it is like a really like 1950s, you know, yep. statement to make. And I also think one of the problems is that we haven't met Stucker Channing yet. And like, so we haven't established his role as a husband. We've seen him as a father, but we haven't seen him as a husband, which like, wow, want to get to that later. But we haven't like talked about, haven't seen him. And the second that Stalker Channing shows up on the show is like, oh, Bartlett totally makes sense. It's like, oh, okay, I get him. This this woman is running his life. And like, he may be the president of the United States, but he does not actually make any decisions. And 
there's like that really works well. What's interesting about him though is the one relationship that I feel like they did totally nail from the beginning is his relationship with Toby. Like even that moment at the poker table that's so brief when they're going at each other and he's quizzing him and things like that. That which in a, in a lot of ways that relationship is like the the heart of as well as it, it becomes sort of as like Leo and Bartlett are kind of brothers. Toby very much is like the son and the child of, of this administration. And we're going to ignore the devastation that happens later. Um, but so, but that's like interesting that I didn't realize yes. how early that was set up, how early the sort of like competitiveness and the almost like that Toby's the only one that can tell him to like shut the fuck up and move on. It, I didn't realize how early that was set up. I mean, it's even earlier. They had the basketball yeah. pickup scene outside the oh, White that's House right. oh, and that's Toby right. calling him out for all that shit then. So it's like, yeah. it, it, it is, I, I totally agree with you that the, um, the, the Bartlett Leo relationship is one that, that, sorry, the Bartlett Toby relationship is one that fascinates me in terms of how drastically dissimilar their upbringing is both have, you know, tricky relationships with their fathers. Um, And, 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 and that Toby is one of the only people that really calls Bartlett out on the things that he does. You know, I, I, I've alluded to this in the past a little bit, but you know, I, I'm fascinated with the relationship, that relationship, and also the relationship between Tony Soprano and Melfi. There's these powerful men that have these people that are inside their heads and resent the fact that they need people inside their heads to to function for all intents mm-hmm. and purposes. Um, I, I think it's I think it's really interesting, and I think mm-hmm. that Toby, I love the poker scene at the top of the episode. I mean, I love whenever they play poker on this show. Um, Aaron Sorkin, an avid poker player, mm-hmm. um, and, and and just the way that. Um, I mean, there's the humor of it, obviously, Bartlett filibusting the poker game and, and, and fucking with everybody with trivia, but that, that Toby doesn't go for it, that Toby mm-hmm. has all the answers, that Toby never takes the bait for all intents and purposes. Um, it, it's, but he it's does a lose, lovely relationship. But he does, he does take lose. the bait. That's the thing, is that like Bartlett is able to Bartlett does win. finally stump him. <laughs> I mean, that is, I mean, I think that's yeah. ultimately the thing, and that's what I do really like about the place that, that where Toby and Bartlett's relationship goes is the thing about Bartlett is he is the smartest person in the room always like mm-hmm. no matter what he is always the smartest person in the room which very much felt like they were trying to figure out how to make like the nerd president work and and <laughs> yes, yes. like make him not a know-it-all but also mm-hmm. it's Martin Sheen who like feels charming as a know-it-all mm-hmm. and like so it's interesting that that they're trying to figure that out but that ultimately is what the argument is sort of between Toby and Bartlett as they go on in the relationship is that Toby is like, you're afraid of being smart. You're afraid of coming off as a Nobel prize winner and all of these things. And like <laughs> the fact that he's an economist is one of my favorite things. Cause it's like <laughs> the nerdiest possible Nobel prize you could win. Yeah, and yeah. by the way, not knocking it in any way. Like, <laughs> I, I also went to art school. So like economy right, to me right. is just, like, I open my wallet and that's what that means. Like, I don't understand yes, yes, the I, nuances yeah. But the fact that like Bartlett is an economist mm-hmm. is hilarious mm-hmm. to me. I even love when they call him out on being folksy at one point. It's like, yeah. I am folksy. Like that is yeah. who I am. Like I, I think that that stuff is, um, I agree with everything you're saying in terms of that there's all these layers to the Bartlett character. He really is an onion that they're constantly kind of peeling away and showing mm-hmm. things. Uh, the next episode is the one where they introduce Abby played by Starker Channing and, um, 
I had Joe Reed on to talk about it. It's such Mm. a great episode. Um, But it's fascinating to me. She had no backstory. She had no idea what she was walking into. She was pulled out of a movie to do Mm -hmm. basically, you know, five days of work on this show for all intents and purposes. She didn't even, you know, the the first scene she has with Martin Sheen, they'd never met each other before. I know. I love that. That was like the first time they met. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Stalker's talked about how the prickliness that exists in Abby is is actually her frustration and not knowing enough about the Mm -hmm. character, which is just tremendous to think about how like these these bearing walls in a character that I've loved for so long are just basically an actor that's annoyed. <laughs> it's, it's great. And great. and her like where her character goes, particularly in those first four seasons, is so interesting. And like the it's it's interesting because there is a very um patriarchal oh, yeah. conversation to be had about the West Wing in general. Um and the show and the actual mm-hmm. place in real life. And there's something to the fact that, you know, Jed is the one that lies ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, I guess spoiler alert, but like, seriously, if you're fucking listening yeah. to this, yeah, if you're listening I mean, to this, you've watched the show. Yeah. Um, but you know, he's lied about his Parkinson's and he has to get censured and everything. But Abby is the one who loses her license and Abby is the one who's not able to work. And there is the moment. I do think they address it very well where it's like, they don't talk about it, but it's very clear that she's like, this is not right. You know, that's not right. But like, this is the only way for us to get through this and to move on is if I do this Mm -hmm. and the sacrifice that women are forced to make when their husbands are in the positions of power or their spouses are in the positions of power, I think is a very interesting conversation that though some of the dialogue and conversations in 99 feel dated, I don't think has changed very much in 2021. And I think, you know, we're having the conversations more, but you know, I saw something recently on like a gossip website, which is so stupid, but they were talking about a male actor and they're like his wife and his, like his wife is a television star. And I was like, guys, like, come on. Like, I know it's a paparazzi photo and it doesn't fucking matter, but like, get, like she has a name. Let's just like, she's just as yeah. famous as him. Yep. So it's, you know, it's this gender um, balance and gender power struggle that shouldn't be a power struggle. That should just be, I agree. Know, there's the there's the you know one of the lines in season three when um, when Bartlett and Leo are watching the hearing when uh, uh, Abby's going to lose her license and and Bartlett says the things we do to women yeah um, I mean it's it's the, the show recognizes it in its own way at a time when I guess it felt it could in its own way do that um, we haven't come far enough that goes without saying but. Um, but speaking of patriarchy, it feels like this might be the right time to talk about Josh and Donna, uh, mm-hmm. which does have a, a, a patriarchal kind of vibe to it. I mean, I, I I do think that in its own way, Donna does have power over Josh in a way. Mm-hmm. Like I, I know that I know she is his assistant. It doesn't bump me as much as it might otherwise had Donna's character not grown a spine as quickly as she did and sort of Mm -hmm. keeps Josh in line for all intents and Mm -hmm. purposes. Um, But in this particular episode, she's frustrated about the budget surplus and she wants her money back. Uh, It's a very kind of classic Donna cute runner where she pops in from time to time and and talks about why she feels she can spend her money better than uh, the government can. Uh, And it it I mean, by the way, preach. Preach. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Talk about things that are relevant. Who are they? 
I will say, though, um, I did appreciate that it comes full circle at the end when she buys sandwiches for everybody with Josh's money and doesn't give him the change and says, I can spend your money better than you can. Uh, it's, it's, it's a nice kind of uh, full circle. I, I think it's interesting. It does not bump me as much as other people. I think, A, for the fact that she is his assistant, like mm-hmm. that is is the that is her role and the other is that they didn't plan for her to be a character you know it was that janelle maloney like was such an incredible Mm -hmm. actor and gave a great performance and she and whitford had such great chemistry that that role grew ultimately into one of the leads of the show so i think it's you know it's again we're talking about what is episode six of season one like seven we're still Seven. We're talking about the first seven hours of a television show. Like I can tell you that that you're still barely like yeah. you barely know who your main character <laughs> is at this point. So like I, I and I yeah. do think they figure it out again as they go. And I think you're right. I think very quickly she does grow a spine, and you sort of see that at the end with the like I can spend your money better than you can. And it, it also just feels like, I mean, listen, uh, uh, broadcast television, uh, as you very well know, very different from uh, cable and streaming and premium and all yeah. the various facets that exist now. Um, so, you know, the, the, the show finds a formula and it finds a rhythm for itself. Um as shows have to on the fly, essentially, as they're being made when you're doing broadcast television. Um, Donna fulfills, not only is she a great character, but she also fulfills a role of explaining things to the audience when things need to be explained. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, this is just the nature of a broadcast show that just people don't think about, um, which is... It really did tell me the difference between Democrats and Republicans about the surplus, though. I was like, fuck. (laughs) I was with the good guys. Like, give me my money back. Seriously, I, I also think you know you you mentioned uh, the 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 essentially Donna swallowing Mandy uh, and 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 essentially killing Mandy's character, which RIP. Yeah, Mandy also I mean, fine. Like I, you know, it's and it's no no fault of that actress whose name is comp- Moira Mo- um, Kelly. Moira Kelly, thank you. Topic, one of the greatest performances of all of time. Course. Yeah, she's great. Um, she's amazing. I think it's just. It, there were too many characters. There are too many characters on that show. And I was just watching something recently that I was completely lost on me. That's another ensemble show. And like, as the show went on, they continued to add characters. And so it became <laughs> diluted. And like, it was kind of, it was like uh, by season three, I was like, what are we watching? Like, I don't even know which storyline I'm supposed to be interested yeah, in. Yeah, There's yeah. too many characters. And it kind of felt like that, it feels like a very networking note, which is like, mm-hmm. we need all these different people. And then, you know, by episode sort of seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, you figure out like, these are the characters that have chemistry. These are the characters that we're interested in. These are the actors who are really, you know, working with the material. I think Leo's daughter also is somebody who was a surprise like that. Like she Mallory, she like really had great chemistry with Sam. And then yeah. I, I was always very bummed that she didn't Same. last, like that yep. she didn't come back. Cause she Same was Ainsley such a, Hayes. I mean, she ugh, also had great chemistry. Ainsley. Oh, RIP. I love Ainsley. <laughs> Ainsley had some of the, my favorite yes, episodes yes. of all time. The episode where she locks herself in the closet, trying to hide from the president. <laughs> I talk about often it is, I have done that in real life, not trying to be Ainsley Hayes, but like hiding from somebody that I very much admired and like ended up locked in a kitchen, but I couldn't like come out. Cause I was like, <laughs> I've just chosen this moment. Like I'm here. I'm just, that's I'm fantastic. Um, so it's very real to me, but yeah, it's, um, I mean, but also talk about idealized. She's yes. a very idealized Republican. 
Yes. I mean, I'll say I, I agree with you, too, that that there's this sort of uh, this show does a good job of figuring out who its core is mm-hmm. and kind of sticking with it until Aaron Sorkin leaves and John Wells does what John Wells does. No, no, you know, um, disrespect to John Wells, but the, the, the pool starts to expand. Uh, you know, he, he did it on ER as well, quite successfully of sort of revolving door of cast and what have you. Um, but some shows, you know, can do this sort of Dickensian, like mm-hmm. the wire is a good example of just like having a million characters that all mm-hmm. coexist. Um, and it's done seamlessly. It's just a very, very, very hard thing to do. I, yeah, I just watched, um, a couple months ago, I watched all, all of for all mankind, which is like, I, love, the, I, love, I, love. I know we, we, we exchange we, we emails about it. It's like I, I know people have talked about it, but I'm just like, <laughs> how does nobody talk about this more? It's one I, of the best shows I've seen in years. I can't believe so it. Yeah. But talk about being able to balance an ensemble and yep. find ways to not have you miss characters when they're gone for episodes, yeah. and then have them back, and you're like, oh, this is great. And then, I mean, truly, if you haven't watched this show, watch it. And like, oh, yeah, you can't even talk about it's, what it's the heartbreaker at the end of season two. Let it's, me tell you, but. <laughs> also, interesting correlation. Coral Pena, who's on that show, is also in the post. So oh, very that's awesome. exciting little that's little fantastic. shout out there. Um, but yeah, oh, that's I just how I every- knew her. Yeah, yeah, she's is she the one that talks to Meryl at the yeah. end? Of, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yes, she uh, plays a character named after my mom, which is very oh, exciting. That's awesome. um, but shout out to Nance. Um, but I think yeah, that For All Mankind a, yeah. does something too, which is again a, a symptom of of how television has changed and evolved. Is that that show has? I mean, if if the showrunners are to be believed, and they should be, uh, has sort of this like six or seven year plan of not being about just these people. It's really yes. about the planet and, yes. and space exploration, similar to something like The Crown, for instance, where you're taking this like thirty thousand yep. foot look at something much much larger. Um, that's a that is a. I mean, you know. I think with the crown, though, yeah, I mean, I think with the crown, though, you do have an endpoint. Like, you know that you're going to do whatever, Mm -hmm. six or seven seasons, however many they're doing Mm -hmm. of that. And you're like, okay, we're working towards that. With the West Wing, what's interesting is like, you know, and Sorkin's talked about this, is that he burned through four seasons of story (laughs) in 24 episodes, which also, is it 24 or 27 in the first season? It's something like absurd, 24, which is absurd. The fact Mm -hmm. that, I just did eight episodes of television and I'm like, I'm going to go nap for a year. I can't believe that somebody, my husband also works in television and he's a writer producer. He on one, one year, we call it the year in the cave. He did 20, I think he did 26 episodes because they were doing like, no, it was, they were doing two seasons back to back. They were doing like an A and a B season. I mean, it's just, I don't like at a certain point you're like asking people on the street, for pitches, you're just like I have nothing well, it's, left. It's crazy. I, I wrote yeah. a pilot with a. I wrote a pilot with someone who uh, wrote on the on Gossip Girl, and Gossip mm. Girl was doing 26 episodes, Oof. 25 episodes, where you're just like of a season of television. We're just like, yeah. I agree with you. What what are we even talking about anymore? I mean, no, halfway I mean, through that season, you're just like, I'm out. I'm done. I'm spent. I don't know what. <laughs> and there's also like, as a viewer, I mean, that, I think that is what is one of the most remarkable things about season one of West Wing is there's maybe one or two episodes in here that you're like, eh, okay. You know, like that are like, those are fine. Usually on these long run 22, 24, 26 episode mm-hmm. series, there's like 10 that you just don't give a shit about that. You're like, I'm just burning through this to get to the next episode. <laughs> like that you, that on reruns, yeah. they never show like there are episodes mm-hmm. that have never been seen. Yeah. We rewatched friends during the pandemic and there are episodes mm-hmm. in there that I was like, this has never been rerun. Yeah. This has never been rerun. Yeah. And it's like, 
It's just because it was a 22 episode season. There were 10 seasons of it. Like there's going to have episodes like this. The first season of Westwing is so tight that like, it's just, it's crazy, but it's also used truly at least three years of plot in (laughs) 24 episodes. For sure. I, I, I want to talk uh, about CJ for a second because um, I'm very curious about your thoughts on CJ, which, mm-hmm. which I do think um, evolved into one of Aaron Sorkin's greatest characters, mm-hmm. um, but starts from a place of one of Aaron Sorkin's greatest weaknesses, which is writing female characters. Women that, falling that, down. I was going to say that, that are introduced falling on a treadmill. Um, so I, I, I this episode in particular, CJ doesn't really get much of a storyline. The storyline is uh, CJ doesn't know anything about the census and she learns a bunch about the census from Sam. Um, so this is this is an episode that shows the, the weaknesses of the CJ character up top. Um, but, you know, in, in the next episode, you you really sort of get to bolster the Danny Kincannon relationship that, that ultimately turns into something uh, significant for the series. Um, and I do think that CJ becomes a much more fleshed out character, whether or not it's because Allison Janney sort of really comes into her own to some degree or really sort of imbues the character with the fortitude and the, you know, the, the, the three-dimensionality. Um, but what do you think about CJ in season one and sort of how does, how, you know, her progression over the course of the series? I love CJ. I, I know that there is a large hubbub of people in the world that don't, think Sorkin writes female characters well in general. I viscerally disagree with that, and I'm super excited for all the Twitter hot takes I'm going to get after this goes out. Um, I just do. I mean, I I think, yeah, she falls on the treadmill. To be honest, I broke my hip putting pajama pants on, so, like, I'm not the best barometer of, like, you know, how, how people oh can God. injure themselves really easily. Um, that but sounds terrible. I, oh, it was awful. It was, sure, it was a horrible experience. Um, but, like, I... Yeah, her introduction isn't great. Mm-hmm. Um, she falls in the pool later in the, the, I think it's in the premiere of season two when they do the yep. flashback episode. Um, some people are klutzy, just is what it is. Like, I actually really like that that's part of CJ's character because she is so put together. She is the face of the, I was just about to say the face of the franchise. She's the face of the West Wing. You know, she's the face of the government. You know, I think there's a very human aspect to her klutziness. Um, I think her evolution is very good. I think where she starts, you know, I like that she is, you know, given the comedy in this episode where she's like, I'm playing it fast and loose. Does it bum me out that it's the press secretary and the only female lead on the show who doesn't understand what the census is? Yes. That's kind of a bummer. But I also, again, as we were saying earlier, it's episode seven. They haven't figured everybody out yet. They're figuring her out. And I think by the time we get to the end of this season and then, you know, as we progress by season three, when she has the whole storyline with Mark Harmon and all of that, like she is incredible. And I think she won the Emmy that year Mm -hmm. and she's, you know, she's um, amazing. I do think it's an interesting conversation of like, what would that character be in somebody else's hands? Because Alice and Janney is such a singular actress and such a singular performer um, that, you know, I talk about it a lot in, in my work and when working with people is you can't just be a, an, an 
an, an actor that does drama, you have to, at least in my opinion, have timing and, and understand comedy because it makes everything. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Human and, and relatable. And even if it's a super unique situation, if you get somebody to laugh, they'll cry and things like this. And Alice and Janie has that ability to make us feel very warm and comfortable. And though it is a bummer, she's the woman who's learning about the census at the same time. I was like, tell me more, Sam. I agree. Like, I don't get it. You know, like, so I, you know, there is, I mean, and and I think, you know, look with an ensemble of, I think like 11 people at this point, you're going to have a push and pull. And she gets, you know, to drink the grasshopper, which I, we still didn't see. I'm really bummed. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I think that she, that, that her comedic timing makes us love her so much more. Um, I mean, it goes without saying, you know, you're, 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 uh, your comedic influences make an audience, you know, if they make you laugh, you make them laugh. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's just that simple. But I, I will say this. I do think that in this particular episode, she does serve a purpose, if only to explain mm-hmm. the census stuff, which works out. Her and Rob Lowe have a really great banter. They've got mm-hmm. a really great relationship. I love the whole, you're very good at this, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> it's just all and I love is, is really great. She has a great relationship and really does feel like she ties everything together yes. because yeah. she is a part of everybody's lives, but um, mm-hmm. not necessarily tied to one in particular in the way that Leo and Bartlett are really tied together or the way that Whitford and, and uh, Rob Lowe feel very tied together mm-hmm. at times or Donna, like Allison Janney very much feels like the, the center of the web. Her relationship mm-hmm. with Toby is one of my favorite relationships yes. and like their weird flirtation that you're always kind mm-hmm. of like, are they flirting? Are they? <laughs> yeah. Like, have they done have it? They sl- have they slept together before? Is that something <laughs> yes, that happened? Yes, yes. Am I crazy? Yes. Um, and and so like, there's this really beautiful relationship, and then you know, I think there's I, I there's a lot of value in how she is kind of they're still kind of figuring her character out in the first these first few episodes because then she become when she fucks up when she's in the middle of the of a press briefing and mm-hmm. she sc- closes her door and screams like mm-hmm. that when she's sort of isolated from the West Wing because mm-hmm. of her screw ups mm-hmm. it's really great and I think she is forced to stand up for herself and ask for respect totally. which I think is is better than if you know she I think it's better to watch that evolution at least for me and and was a was a more interesting character 
then unfortunately, Mandy, RIP again. But I was also like going to other female characters in the show. It's like Mary Louise Parker, when she shows up, it's like, oh, oh God bless. The best. Oh, the best. Another one that I'm like, why? where did you go? I know you, be, I know you had to be the star of your own show. It's fine. But like, couldn't you just come back for a little bit longer? I was just like, oh. Yeah, she was so, she was, she was tremendous. I, I, another female character that is worth talking about is Zoe. And I want to kind of unpack mm-hmm. this a little bit because it leads to the, the bar stuff. Um, there's this which leads to the end of which also ends leads to the end of season four almost yes. exactly yes Just it's literally yeah. He, yeah he he tells her the nightmare scenario uh and the nightmare scenario is the end of season four um but uh but i, I there's this sort of kind of i don't want to say clumsy but a little too cutesy scene with zoe and mallory and josh in the hallway they hear that that Bartlett has asked Josh to take Charlie out for drinks so that he feels sort of, you know, social and what have you. Um, and they want to come with, and it's, it's, it's just a little too cutesy the way that it's played. I don't know if you felt similarly, um, yes. but it's, it's just like Mallory's got a crush it, on Sam and like, it's all this, like, I don't know. It kind of, it didn't, it didn't really actually feel cutesy for me for Zoe. Cause Zoe's 18. So I was like, yes, kind sure, of, sure, you know, sure, sure, sure. so yes, that was, yes. I was like, Mallory, you're 35 years old. I was like, <laughs> yes, that was a little bit yes. or 30, whatever. But yeah. so like, I was also like, Mallory, you're 30 and you're hanging out with an 18 year old. Like, like, you know, I mean, yes. Zoe's dope. She's super cool. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and I'm not being ageist in any mm-hmm. way, but like, mm-hmm. that is where it became a little cutesy to me. Um, I, I love Zoe as a character, you know, Elizabeth Moss. It's, it's so, she's the best. It's also like, I guess if you want a show to be a massive hit and for everyone to love it, put Elizabeth Moss in it because like Mad Men, uh, The West Wing, Handmaid's Tale. It's like, good Lord. Um, And by the way, rightfully so, she's exceptional. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But it's interesting watching her evolution as well. And this mm-hmm. is sort of what, this is, I guess, this is like her second episode, right? Because the Chili yeah. episode is her first one. Yeah. It's interesting. And she's not as utilized in this episode, but I think it's sort of like the process of getting to know her. I agree. And and, and the process of the relationship between Zoe and Charlie and, mm-hmm. and where that goes, you know, they basically, uh, Josh, Charlie, Zoe, CJ, Mallory, and Sam go for drinks at some Georgetown bar. Some, a couple of guys played by Eric Balfour that you mentioned, um, who, who I loved on six feet under. Um, basically these guys start harassing Zoe at the bar. Charlie, clocks it, goes to investigate and try to sort of uh, defuse the situation. Things get racist and homophobic. And oh. it's 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 a crazy thing to think that like NBC was okay with airing this type of stuff ever. The other crazy thing to me is like, okay, so they went out for drinks after work. This is like 6.30 p.m. Where <laughs> have you guys been? They're getting yes. loaded off yes. your asses. <laughs> like it's, that, yeah. I'm like, this is not... Yeah. But there, I mean, not to divert from the racism and yes, homophobia yes, yes, that is sure, of course, of course, extremely yes. explicit. Yeah. But it's like they're so drunk in this yeah. scene that yes. it was very, I was actually like, that kind of took me apart, back a little yeah. bit before even getting to the racism and homophobia because I was just like, what time is it? Like, where? I thought we'd like just left the office. Even yeah. though it's 8.30. It's like, <laughs> you guys haven't even had dinner yet. I mean, yeah, it's. It strains believability on a bunch of levels, unfortunately, which is sort of, you know, uh, the thing for me. Yeah. Yeah, please. please, please. I was just saying the thing about the racism and homophobia is 
it does not particularly surprise me that this was on network television in 1999. I mean, I think we look at what's been on network television in 2021 or, in, yeah. you know, in the last mm -hmm. 10 years. Unfortunately, it's not that surprising to me. Um, mm -hmm. I think what was surprising to me was how overt it was and mm -hmm. how graphic it was. It was yep. really like, I, so I guess it's, it's not surprising to me that a, a, a level of racism and homophobia was used in this scene in particular because of everything that was happening. And, and it's not surprising to me that that made that to air, but the level of it in this scene is quite um, intense. It's pretty visceral. Like it, it hits you on yes. a gut level in a way that yes. I was surprised about, which by the way, I mean, is it necessarily a bad thing? I'm obviously against everything that's said in the scene. And yet at the same time, I did find myself going, there are people that believe this still to this day. Yeah. And it's it's very upsetting. Yeah. But that adds to the drama of the scene. Like, I'm, I'm sort of, do you know what I mean? Like, there's this push and pull going oh, on in my head But it's also, bit. it feels like so much. It was yes, like, yes, how yes, bad yes, of a guy does Eric yes. Balfour have to be? Yes. It was like, yes. he's, first yes. of all, he's, he's sexually harassing a young woman Correct. and physically blocking her from leaving. Mm -hmm. He's racist, he's homophobic, and he has an eight ball blow in his pocket. It was like... Is he? How many hats like, does Eric Balfour's character like, need to be wearing? I mean, it was it was really arch. I was it was yeah. very mustache twirly, and so like yes. that was for me. It was like whoa, whoa. Like yeah. I, there also was a weird thing that happened in it that felt very network noty to me. So I wonder if this whole scene was actually like we have to make him worse and worse or something. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. But there's a there's a moment that has always felt very strange to me. One is the shot of him picking up the beeper or the panic button, which is fine. Like we're establishing he's picked up the panic button, right? Whatever. But it's super obvious. It's like we pan down and it's like, whoa, let me go get this panic button that we just spent a minute describing what it is. Yes. And then after he, after they get arrested by the secret service, he like throws it up in the air. Whitford throws up the air yeah. and catches it. And he's like, my job here is done. And it feels like the least Josh Whitford thing of all time and truly feels like a network note of like, well, how do we know who called the Secret Service? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, yeah, I, I, agree. I don't know how to answer. That's I one of those things that you're like, you're right. I don't know how to answer that. I don't, you know, as it's, a writer. You're like, okay. It's, a, it's so, a clunky scene for sure in a bunch of ways. I agree with you that it feels network uh, noty which is part of it too. Like it's so dialed up that you're kind of yeah. like, what are we doing here? It gets us to, to the scene with Bartlett and Zoe and him laying out for her why it's so important, which tees up not just season four, but tees up the assassination attempt that happens at the end of season one. Like yep. it's doing a lot of work. So I'm yep. okay with it on a plotty level, but I agree with you that it's just like, there's just so much in it. It's a lot. It also like, I, again, I, I really do think Sorkin writes women in general very well. Um, and it is also a scene that for me was very much written by a man. Like you can tell for me as a woman, like sure. that it was written by a man. If I was Zoe and I can say like for pretty much a blanket statement for any woman that like, if I was Zoe and I was feeling it, if I was physically incapable of getting away and my friend was there and there were four other guys over there, two other guys over there who are friends of mine and by the way, not to mention that I'm also the president's daughter, I would have been like, motherfuckers, get out of here. Like, what are you doing? 
Like, I, are you out of your minds? I will kick your dick in. Like, move. I don't, I, like, that to me, because they felt so actually not threatening in a way, like, that they, there was a physical barrier and all that. But there are ways to, that, that I have been threatened as a woman, or that I felt physically threatened as a woman, that are way less arch, that are yeah. way more terrifying, that that is what felt, like, very inauthentic to me because it was written by a man, because it was written by somebody who really had not felt threatened in that way because of their gender. And that, so that was hard for me to sort of wrap my head around. And it was also a little bit like, you know, like don't make Zoe seem stupid. You know, it's, it's, you know, we can all make mistakes and things like that, but like truly a certain point when they're like, I don't know who you are. She's, and she says like, are you joking? It really feels like there's like one more sentence after that where it's like, guys, I'm the daughter of the president of the United States. The secret service are outside. You may want to rethink your life choices right now. Like just a hint, like all the vagaries, you know, once they start being extremely racist and homophobic to Charlie, I love that. He's just like, I'm going to watch this and love it because like, fuck you guys. (laughs) But just like before, I guess that point I was like, it was just a little forced to me i also just didn't love that that cj and mallory are like receded in the background we get like one yeah. shot of them just kind of like watching it's like <laughs> I, I just i don't know all, all this sort of stuff where you're just like it, it all just it all just feels very 99 unfortunately i think if the scene yeah. was shot and written today it would be very different uh in a bunch yes. of different ways um i i, I, I want just wait to, i just, yeah, I just please, have yeah. to add something because like mm-hmm. uh, when you said that cj and mallory are like in the corner i just had the image of the scene and Endgame when like all of the female superheroes come together and I was like oh if this was made now it would be like CJ and Mallory like come stand behind her and they're like we got this um It's exactly. so funny. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I, I want to just uh, talk about the titular Mr. Willis. Uh, our, our essentially, I don't want to say it's the A story, but it does feel like it's obviously the meat of the episode in a lot of ways. Um, I, 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 I liked this this storyline for a bunch of reasons. The actor that portrays Mr. Willis, uh, his name is Al Fan, is is tremendous in it. Um, it's a really beautiful uh, storyline. His wife has passed. Um, and he is standing in for her essentially for a vote um, on who should be counted for all intents and purposes, like how we do a census. Um, and uh, it's it becomes a hallmark of the show of Toby coming into a situation with a very Toby mindset, and then someone turns him around, and by the end, sort of his heart grows three sizes. It's very Grinch mm-hmm. who becomes, you know. I mean, something. it's in the it's, well, it's also in the pilot. You know, when he tells Josh that he has to apologize, and then he's yes, like, yes. "She's calling us Jewish." You know, yeah. like I think that yep. that's really, you know, it's he has the. I love that about it's a very Sorkin thing, but I love that about Toby that he like ultimately is like, no, I have to be right about this. Right. And sort of is the moral and ethical backbone of the show. Like, yep. Which ultimately, again, we won't talk about what happens. But. We won't talk about how Toby's character resolves itself. But I'll just say that that I do love that. So Toby comes into this. Uh, there are three Congress people. Uh, it's Mr. Willis and, and two other guys, um, uh, two other white guys. One of, the to- guy, one of the But one of the guys yes. is the gay congressman. From another correct, episode. Correct, correct. Which I think is also an interesting addition of him sure. into the scene. Sorry. Totally, continue. totally. No, no, no. Um, but 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 Toby sort of comes into it um in a very Toby way, wind at his back, uh, a, a copy of the Constitution in his pocket, and 
and sort of admits at the end to Mr. Willis after he changes his mind on the vote uh, that there are flaws in his argument, specifically that it could lead to people thinking that we don't need to vote and that they can just be uh, sampling and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and Mr. Willis has two phenomenal lines. The first is, it's okay by me as long as it's not the same people who decide who's on, what's on television, which is amazing. And then also he says, the right place to start is to say fair is fair. This is who we are. These are our numbers, um, which uh, in 2021, we are still not counting everybody, just to, you know, mm-hmm. FYI. Oh, just to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> just to be clear, we've learned nothing from this episode. But um it, John it's, Lewis it's, Act hasn't passed. Just FYI. Just yeah. We're still at a 50-50 split as of yesterday. Yep. Yep. Um so, so we we literally, <laughs> we literally as a country don't want people to vote. I just want that to be very clear. That yep. is what this country is now. This well, show half was this made country, in nineteen yes. half, excuse me. Fifty percent of this country. Yes. yes. I mean I mean the the universal we, as fifty <laughs> yes. percent of this country, yes. does not want the people mm-hmm. of this country to vote, mm-hmm. which is just yeah. like if you just say it as simply as that, mm-hmm. is truly one of the most asinine fucking things I've ever heard. And like to call yourself an American or to call yourself like somebody who loves this country and not want people in this country to vote is truly abysmal. And you cannot talk about um, patriotism ever again to me if that's what you're saying. It's just a fact. Could not agree. And the fact that in 1999 we're having this conversation, you know, look like in the post, we were really excited because we're making this movie about the first female CEO of Fortune 500 com- company, and we're like, oh, how things have changed. Uh, no, they haven't. It's like under nine percent of Fortune 500 companies are run by have CEOs that are women. Um, I guess that's better than one, but like things do not change. Uh, it turns out. And they, they, or very slowly is is part of the problem. It does it does or feel they like, change and then they go back. I was going to say two steps forward, one yeah. step back is definitely yeah. a, a pattern for 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 America. I mean, it's it definitely is um, uh, to 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 underline your frustrations. You know, this idea that the Republicans know that if everyone votes, they lose. Yeah. So uh, yeah. we we can't count everybody. We can't let everybody vote. We have to gerrymander and we have to essentially cheat in order to to hold on to what power we have left. It's There's well, an inevitability and, to it that I take yes. some solace in that. But anyway. I mean, I don't have, I don't have that solace. <laughs> but I'm also... <laughs> You're I'm also not, actually I'm, American and I'm Canadian, so there's that. Well, there you go. Um, I, I But I think for me... It's also the crazy thing is it's like such a small percentage of the Republican Party. It's not actually the, you know, Nicole Wallace is one of my favorite pundits. Nicole Wallace was a Republican for a very long time, obviously is no longer is, you know, I think Steve Schmidt, longtime Republican (laughs) campaign manager for John McCain, you know, part of the Sarah Palin brain trust of putting her on the ticket, Um, you know, very much not. So that's, I think that's what is so scary to me is when the sort of born and bred Republicans are so on the side of Democrats, then what is the Republican party now? And who are the Republicans who are, who are terrified of losing it? And it's because they're uh, terrified of facing reality that if everyone in this country votes, they will not be in power. Um, Just FYI, just want to, this is a tip. That's a democracy. Just like, just so you guys know, that that's how a democracy works. So sorry yeah. to let you know. So sorry yeah. to break that to you. But um, yes, going back to the episode, <laughs> but this, the, the Mr. Willis, the Mr. Willis character, who who, 
I mean, I think that the 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 heart of this storyline is listening, right? Mm-hmm. Like listen to people's arguments, listen to people's thoughts, let it swirl around in your brain and come mm-hmm. to your own conclusions on things. Um, and that's what Mr. Willis does, which is so, what is so heartwarming about this storyline is um, he knows what Toby's doing. He's not an idiot. He, he completely yeah. gets it and understands and uh, knows that he even admits it. Like my wife was much smarter than me. Um, I love him. It, uh, he's just lovely. And just, he's like, you know, I, I, this is the only vote I'm going to have. Um, and I want to do the right thing. And, we just wish that everyone in in government had, you know, the the wherewithal and the heart that Mr. Willis has. Well, there's a lot in admitting, there's a lot of value in admitting you're wrong. There's a lot of value in in changing your opinion. I think we, um, as a country in general, regardless of politics, condemn people when they are wrong and condemn people when they make mistakes. And rather than, accepting that everybody's human and we all make mistakes or we're all allowed to change our minds. Like what, what is so wrong about deciding to change our minds because we've learned something Uh, that's, you know, bananas to me is like, Oh, I've learned more. Let me just completely stay on my stand, my ground. That's wrong. That I now know is wrong. Um, I think that there is so much value in, in learning and listening, as you said, and in empathy of for people to change their minds and empathy and also in, in voicing your opinion and not changing somebody's mind, you know, and, and coming to the table and saying we're on equal grounds. And as Mr. Will says, fair is fair. And let's all talk about it, uh, you know, at at sort of the same table. And ultimately I might not change your mind, but I changed his mind. And, you know, I think so, but again, this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. It was like, this is ideal. Isn't this wonderful? It's like a wonderful scenario where but not on it's not an unreasonable one. Like that's that's completely not unreasonable. (laughs) I also feel like my husband's gonna listen to this and be like hashtag marriage. It's like, you know, I mean, (laughs) yes, honey, I'm sure that I could learn to admit my wrongdoings much much easier and faster. Uh, Uh, But Uh, but you know, so I'll just I fully admit I am part of the problem. (laughs) I think um uh yeah, I think it's 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 this is actually one of the more idealized scenarios in the or plots in this episode to me. And um also like how nice is it to hear a man talk about his wife being smarter than him and how nice is it to you know I think it's also an interesting juxtaposition between the Leo and Bartlett story because it's this is a man who has lost his wife, not out of divorce, out of death, yeah. and his sort of appreciation and respect and how he feels about her and the dichotomy of the, the conversation that happens between Bartlett and Leo is really interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I just, I, I want to just piggyback on on a little bit of what you were saying about um, how reticent we are to embrace people that change their minds on things. And obviously, it's not just in politics. I mean, just look at film Twitter. You can't mm-hmm. even change your opinion oh. on a movie that you liked or don't like um, without everybody jumping all over you. It's it's it is really sad. Like I, I find it because I'm sure you're this way too, where it's like there are all sorts of things that I didn't like when I was younger that I've rewatched and I have sure. a whole new perspective i've you know you evolve we should be able to evolve and when we can't do that um 
it's it's just it's so limiting like it just it's it's so frustrating to me especially obviously in politics you know if you change your opinion you're wishy-washy you flip-flop i mean all these negative connotations to things you know where i mean i, I remember when you know when obama ran in 20 uh, in 2008 he was not for gay marriage he, i mean he, because he saw that that, that that politically it wasn't advantageous for him to be so he changed his mind when he saw that the winds were changing and all of that but mm-hmm. Clearly, he was for gay marriage in 2008 as well. He just couldn't say it. But, like, it's just all this type of stuff where you just get into these really tricky scenarios because of how rigid people belief system is uh, i just it's it's really it's really frustrating anyway, I, just I was to gonna i was gonna mention um obama as well actually um ben rhodes uh wrote this really amazing book um that the name of it is eluding me right now but i will look it up i'm so sorry ben no, um uh and um it is called the world as it is and it was about his eight years with obama in the white house and in the first few chapters there's a conversation um where he like was not close to Obama. He was, you know, sort of uh, very far away, but he was in one of the first meetings and they were talking about how Obama was going to deal with the fact that he had changed his mind about the Iraq and Afghanistan war. And that Obama was really, people were like, just shut the question down. Don't answer it. Like just avoid it. And Ben was like, how are you going to avoid this? Like you, you changed your mind. Like that's, that is what it is. And like (laughs) avoiding the fact that you changed your mind is going to make this way worse. It's going to make it a way bigger story. And it's funny. It like reminds me of this scene (laughs) in a very fictional movie um, called Claire and present danger where, uh, where um, Jack Ryan is talking to the president Mm -hmm. and like, the president realizes that his one of his best friends was a drug dealer and like a (laughs) money launderer for the largest cartel in Mexico, which we really blow by that storyline very easily in that movie. Um, I feel like that would be a pretty big scandal now. Yeah, but, I think so. yeah. but Jack Ryan tells the president, like, no, I think you should tell him, like, he's my best friend. Like, lean into the story, which for some reason in this movie works really well. I really feel like <laughs> if Joe Biden's best friend oh turned gosh. out to be the biggest money launderer for the largest cartel in Mexico... And he was like, oh, he wasn't my good friend. He was my best friend. I would have questions. I would just be, I would be curious. No, it's reasonable. Uh, It's reasonable. I just, Um. thoughts. It's like, so Ozark? Like, he's literally Ozark. That's what we're talking about right now. Cool. So the the episode comes full circle with the staff playing poker again at the end. There's a great moment when CJ says, you can ask me anything about the census. And Bartlett says, how many people are in the United States? And she doesn't know. Yep. I, okay, so I, I I have an admission, which is I have like a terrible sense of population. My husband, okay. the city we're in right now, my husband was like, there's 145,000 people here. I was like, big or small? Not sure. <laughs> like, I know, like. That's small. Yeah, I, I, I understand it's small, but I was like, how small are we talking? Like, I know Los Angeles uh, is millions, so like, sure, I, sure. I understand, but I knew that. <laughs> my husband looked at it and he's like, this is not. Like it is hard so, to tell yeah. that, though. I mean, like, you're but one person, yeah. right? Like, how do you sense that there's... I mean, know? I look around, I see 50 people. I'm like, okay, like, you know, yeah. how much more do I multiply? So I, I don't know, but like, so it's also, but it's an interesting thing when you're talking about the census and you're talking about the population. Like, it is quite unquantifiable how many people in this country yeah. there are and mm-hmm. have gone up since 1999. Like, that's the other thing that I, going back to politics, talking about the census and talking about, you know, we just dealt with this. So it feels very okay. fresh talking Poorly. about voting. <laughs> but, oh. 
and talking about voting rights and things like that is like, you know, I think um, there's a really interesting conversation we had of like, this is a country that is larger than most countries in the world. And we are all expected to fit in together and all agree with each other. And that is completely ludicrous. It's just not going to happen, which is why the census exists and why it should be done fairly. Because you are asking for representatives of where you live, of your values, of your beliefs, and they are intended to represent you. Otherwise, we get into the situation we're in now where you have fucking nitwits like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who literally don't understand anything, talking about, you know, I, I don't know, whatever they call it now, family values, whatever this sure, is, sure, that their new thing yeah. is. And but you look at their constituency and you're like, you don't actually fucking represent anybody there. Like the, your constituents hate you. Yes. And so it's it's for me, there is. I don't know. I I'm with CJ. I believe the census is wildly important. And I learned it's, a lot. I mean, it is it, it is wildly important. And we did just go through it. And admittedly went through it, obviously, in an, uh, during an inept uh, administration, but it underlines just how important it was. I mean, yeah. watching, what was the guy's name? Wilbur something or other, the guy who was put in charge of the of the census oh, under Trump? Yeah. Who literally is like the crypt keeper, like a million years old and and, yeah. and and somehow siphoned like $60 million out of his time working in the in the White House. But like, you're just, yeah. it's, it's just- and That's what they mean about civil service, by the way. <laughs> FYI. How much money you can get out of it? Yeah. Yeah. It's so you just and and even then, even in 2021, I felt like getting across to people how important the census is was nearly impossible. Like it's just absolutely people don't see how it has a direct correlation to your everyday life. It's just it's well, it's also I think because you know it's interesting talking about the West Wing and how how much it affected a population of, yeah. of their concept of politics and their involvement yeah. in politics and everything that's happened um, over the last, you know, 22 years since, yeah. since it premiered, how much more, you know, we go in these ebbs and flows, right. Where it was like in 2000, people were invested, but not invested enough. And look what happened. And then like, then in 2004, people were not invested and look what happened. And then in 2008, it was like, you know, it's sort of, we go through these ebbs and flows and then in 2020, you, you know, in 2016 where you see what happens and then in 2020, you see what happens. And so like you go through these ebbs and flows, it, but it does not feel like there is now a cultural touchstone that is sort of giving us this information, albeit, albeit idealized, but something that we can all wrap our heads around and be like, I, and I really don't mean this in a demeaning way, but like in a schoolhouse rockway where your kids are sitting there learning about what the Bill of Rights is when they're five years old, you know, I, it, it doesn't feel like we have that now. And I think we're all like way dumber for it. And it's also, you know, it's going back to the, the, the Bat Bartlett thing. And it's like about the Toby argument is he's afraid of being smart. We are now in this country being told that it's it's not good for us to be smart. That it's that we're too yeah. if we're smart, then if we're educated, even if we're not educated, but if we're intelligent people, I don't equate education with intelligence yeah. or anything like that. So I'm not doing that. But we're being told if that if we are smart people, then we're the enemy. And and if we read books, God for fucking bid, then we're the enemy. And that to me is such a, I mean, when you talk about things being politicized, like you're politicizing education, you're politicizing, like 
This country has one of the vaccines, worst masks. I mean, yeah, vaccines, masks, health. We're living through one of we're still living through one of the greatest pandemics in the history of the world. Like this is yeah. it's still happening, you know, and I I well, greatest pandemics in the history of the, No, it's in the history of the world. It's, yeah, it's, it was like I, in the history of the United States for sure. For sure. For sure. I, yes, I want to. So. I, I want to. I agree with. Obviously, agree with what you're saying, and I, I think that there's something to be said for two things. Uh, quickly, the first is the splintering of television by and large. Just the way that people watch television has changed drastically. We talked about just ratings, and we talked about the way people, you know, um, watch stuff. There's that. So. And then mixed into that is a cynicism that I think is just maybe the, the worst thing to come out of this. Yes, the West Wing is over-idealized. I think we all can agree on that. Um, but it also taught us something. It also hopefully gave us something to aspire to. Um, and to your point, it feels like we're missing that right now. Uh, part of that has to do with broadcast television has a universality to it. it. It's attempting to try to have as many people watching as possible. Now there's sort of a very kind of laser-focused, specific sort of demographic way the television shows are made. And thus, there's this jaded kind of quality that exists in that um, that I think is unfortunate and has led to, to your point, this vacuum when it comes mm-hmm. to stuff like and and that's why you know come full circle a little bit but that's why for all mankind i think it's such a powerful show because that show to me is incredibly hopeful it's a show mm-hmm. very much about the world that we live in today even if it does take place in the 60s and 70s um mm-hmm. and it's a show about potential it's about human possibilities mm-hmm. um so I, I i couldn't agree with you more that we need something to fill that yeah void. it's I'm going to quote another Sorkin show. Um, <laughs> sure. There in on Studio 60, there's this um, episode where there's like you know a playwright um, trying to sell his Sorry. pilot. <laughs> yep, uh, there's a playwright trying to sell his pilot, and it's getting bids, and like it's between HBO mm-hmm. and whatever the NBC you know is yeah. that they UBS. are that they're not yeah. UBS whatever it is. Yeah. And um, Amanda Peet really wants it, and she says to him, and his pilot is about the UN. You know, and which is great. And the head of so head, no one would watch. I mean, literally, like the head of the 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 company, like the CEO comes later and he's like, Great, I see like sweeps all over this. Um yeah. and but so it, which is kind of ironic because it feels like it's a little bit about the West Wing, like you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So it's so it's like about the UN and she's like this show is so great and da, 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 and it deserves to be on network television, not on HBO. It deserves yeah. to be seen by people for free for X, Y, and Z. And the reason I bring that up is because nobody's having that conversation anymore. No. Because for a multitude of reasons, not, you know, and just the evolution of, of creation and television and all of these things, network television does not have that anymore. And I yeah. do think there is something to be said about, putting shows like for all mankind or other uh, you know shows that i've done or worked on on things that you have to pay for versus something that is free for everybody and i so i you know i i think that is absolutely a conversation and sort of the west wing is one of the last vestiges of that that conversation well, it's it's um, it's interesting too. You know, you talk about the 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 paying and not paying, right? I mean, we're 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 getting to a place where essentially cable, as we know it, is probably going to be gone in the next ten to fifteen mm-hmm. years. Um, mm-hmm. You know, FCC regulations will no longer exist for all intents and mm-hmm. purposes. So everything just changes at that point in terms of how people watch television, what's free, what's not. Um, and to your point, I think that 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 it's that 
that's not a good thing for television necessarily. So I'll be, no, I'll be curious not, to see how it plays out. No, and I think also when, you know, look, I, I work in television. I'm, this is not, I, I, I love the ability to make so many different things and tell stories and, sure. and have very different audiences. But when you go on to Netflix and you have a curated list of things you want to watch, you are not forced to watch the West yeah. Wing. You are not forced to watch whatever, you know, but like we talk about, I think there's also been a like network television has been disparaged over the course of the last 20 years in particular, but you look at how things have changed. It's like the first kiss between two men happened on network television. You know, the first time anybody said the word abortion happened on network television. You, the way that things change in some ways is through a cultural zeitgeist and through a moment. And that happens when 13 million people all watch it at once, rather than I caught it on Netflix five years later. And so I, I think that is something that is really missing, particularly in this world where, you know, news has become news media and on both sides, I'm not being sidesy on this. It is, it is, it is a reality show, you know, that yeah. we're living through. And so when you don't have that touchstone, be it, you know, you know, be it Will and Grace, be it, I love Lucy, be it mm-hmm. the West wing, be it any, you know, any, anything that, is an issue that we're as a country dealing with or we're as a world dealing with that we can then sort of manifest and have a conversation about collectively, then yeah, I do think we take steps backwards and we become all very compartmentalized in our worlds. We watch the things that we feel fits our taste, fits our beliefs, our values. We don't explore outside of it. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I, I agree. I mean, everyone talks about the lack of a water cooler, but I, and and I think that 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 is a real thing. The the mm-hmm. lack of cultural moments um, also breeds a lack of community, right? Like the idea mm-hmm. of bringing a bunch of different people together to watch a specific thing, as opposed to like minded people all you know in a vacuum watching a thing together that they're all going to like, and then just keep perpetuating the same stuff is a, mm-hmm. is a problem. Um, just to, to wrap this up, you know, Toby, at the end of the episode, everyone's playing poker. He watches Mr. Willis cast his vote. Uh, makes me cry every time. If I had a nickel for every time an episode either ends or a scene ends on Toby, just like that 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 curmudgeon face of his um, and something lovely happening, and it just makes you melt. I mean, it's just... Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's tremendous. Um, I, I have one last question for you, which is, what is your favorite episode of The West Wing? Do you have a favorite episode? I know it's a, it's sort of a Sophie's choice. Are there a couple that jump out at you? Um, ones that feel, uh, you know, that, that have stayed okay. with you? I made a list, so let me pull it up. <laughs> okay. Um, hang on. No, it's no it's going to take me a minute. No. Um, okay, here we go. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. I'm just, like, <laughs> analyzing it. It's interesting because, like, I think in the shadow of two gunmen, part one and two in particular are, and then what kind of day has it been? So that sort of triptych, it's not one episode, but it's sort of like, yeah, it's, you know, the culmination of the first season. And then, and also kind of our kickoff of like, these are our characters and this is who they're going to be and who we love is some of the most well-written television I've ever seen. And it's hard to not put that at the top even though it's the most for me, it's the earliest of the of my favorites. Sure. So it's sort of a bit of like, you know, like favoritism in that it was just the first <laughs> thing that I saw, and like I sure. remember just being blown away. Um, so those, and also it was like 
what kind of day has it been, which is a classic Sorkinism. Um, but I, I, so those three, I think are really important for me. I, I think in honestly, the, probably the most emotional episode for me is um, two cathedrals, which I have had this argument with Josh Singer many times. <laughs> We've like, of we course. have argued. You wrote with we, a West Wing writer. I did. I wrote with a West <laughs> Winger. Um, I, we have, we have argued about favorite episodes and I can't remember. I think his is two cathedrals and mine was in the shadow of two gunmen. And then like we would switch and then we would argue sure. about it. But sure. you know, two cathedrals just has so much and yeah. deals with Bartlett's faith in a way that I think is so fascinating. I'm sort of fascinated by Catholic presidents just because it's such a, we have one. We have, well, we have one now, but um, you know, it's it's so counterintuitive in so many ways to yeah. the office itself and um and also so intrinsic to somebody's like my 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 one side of my family is very catholic and so it's like it's just sort of personally fascinating to me um but his like fight with his faith is so interesting and then obviously has like one of the best in my opinion one of the greatest music cues of all time and like the pockets and everything is like oh and also just like mrs landingham it's like oh great yeah. The, yeah the 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 most dad rock needle drop ever that works so beautifully oh, so i i i i want to talk about those two episodes very quickly the 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 um in the shadow of two gunmen is probably my personal favorite if i had to pick one uh i just love getting to see how the team comes together i'm a big fan of just like the 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 fractured narrative of being able to see how all these people came into the bartlett administration i find that really satisfying as a obviously mm-hmm. as a fan and as a viewer um and then for two cathedrals you mentioned how uh it it is sort of it's Sorkin at the peak of his powers, perhaps um, uh, with the most um, we'll call it uh, extracurricular activities in his system. Um, <laughs> but I but I also think that um, I remember watching the scene in the Oval Office when he's having the quote unquote fight with Mrs. Landingham, and when mm-hmm. it cuts to that wide shot and she's not there. And I and and it was jarring, and mm-hmm. it was very theatrical, and mm-hmm. him arguing with God in a church like this is all very think about that that's that's like 19 that's 2000 that's the year 2000 mm-hmm. and a broadcast television show is doing something decidedly very unbroadcast something mm-hmm. that's very theatrical and 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 um magic realism is playing into it to some degree or another um it's it's just uh it's incredible that he that he they got away with it quite honestly and that he got to do it you know <laughs> Well, at that point, you know, he's won like 19,000 Emmys and yes, sir, 13 sir. million people are watching the seventh episode of this show on season one. So I feel like, yeah, he could yes, probably yeah. do whatever he wanted. But I do think it's interesting because so many people talk about the dialogue of Sorkin is like, that's Sorkinese, right? Is that that's how we all know him. For me, it's actually those moments is that like he has an ability to build and find the moments that you know are going to come. Like you're not. What the second that there that he mentioned that Mrs. Landingham in the flashback mentions, like you put your pocket, your hands in your pockets when you're lying, or like when you're, you know, when you're about to, whatever it is, like when you're about to yeah. say something that's going to piss somebody off, yeah. whatever it is, you know that's going to come back. And like then when he walks up and you know he's going to do it, and it's like all of this, but it's so emotional, it's so well done, and like it's something that that he does. For me, it's in the most powerful moments of all of his shows or all of his movies. It's like you know, a few good men is like, you know, if I uh, had the op- option to have your father represent me or you represent me, I'd choose you every day and twice on Sunday or like in the newsroom, the Rudy moment or, you know, any of these things that are just sort of like 
even in shows that maybe weren't as successful as the West, well, sure. none of his shows were as successful as the West Wing, but you know, as as yeah. sort of expressive, um, creatively full, round, well rounded, there are those moments, and it's it's really, you know, I I think that it's interesting also when you watch something that he has co-written, like Moneyball, he co-wrote with Steve Dalian. There's like no fucking way in the world that Zalian wrote that moment at the end when Brad Pitt's listening to his daughter and he's like deciding it's like the most Sorkin moment of all time. And that, and there's no dialogue in that scene. Yeah. So like, that's, I think, you know, it's like everybody let's all get, not like he's crying for yes, a yes. break. It's fine. I, you know, he's fine, but yes. So anyways, I think that might be why two cathedrals probably wins out for me. And now Josh has won the five-year argument. <laughs> Well, um, Liz, thank you so much for coming on to talk about the West Wing with me. I very much appreciate thank it. Thank you. This is great. <laughs> and do um, I get to come back and talk about it in the shadow of two gunmen? Sure. You can come talk about any whenever you want to talk about anything. But I, I very I'm, much uh, appreciate you taking the time. I know that you're, you know, uh busy on many, many things, driving across okay. the country with your trash dog and any number of other oh, things. But trash you know, dog. <laughs> that was just slightly overweight. <laughs> Slight like literally slightly overweight to be on a plane. She's five. But um, I do very much appreciate it. And uh, and I look forward to talking again in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. One last thing. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989. Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yonka Task for our artwork and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Podcast like it's. You want the podcast like it's. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.